Looking back at some of the other honors, there's the We Met Caddy Scholarship Fund. You must be very proud of that. I'm very proud of that. Uh, that Caddy Fund was organized in 1949, and uh, it has been a source of great satisfaction to me. There's no story that could ever be told that is richer or sweeter than the story of Francis and Eddie. And may your lives be full of birdies and eagles. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Legacy, the We Met Fun podcast. If you found yourself listening to this episode, it's very likely you're aware of the man we spoke with today, Richard F. Dick Conley Jr. You may even have shared a meal or drink, a laugh, or a round of golf with him over the years, and you too have known his easygoing demeanor and down-to-earth nature. But frankly, we encountered the issue that an interview of really any length wouldn't do him justice. Should the focus be on his legendary career in the financial industry? Dick has spent nearly 60 years as an investment manager and through the decades has built himself into one of the nation's top brokers. Publications such as Barron's have regularly listed him as a top 100 financial advisor in the country, and he has spent decades managing investments for clients, such as his dear friend Arnold Palmer. Should the focus instead be on his philanthropy? Dick is the largest benefactor in the history of the We Met Fund, but his generosity reaches far beyond that. He and his wife, Anne Marie, have done amazing work with the dozens of organizations in Massachusetts and beyond. And he even has a wing of a hospital in Dublin named in his honor. Or maybe the conversation should focus on his lifelong passion for the game of golf. Dick was a scratch golfer in his early teens and spent his childhood caddying at Woburn Country Club. A golf captain in both Malden Catholic and later Holy Cross, Dick is modest about his talent and career on the course and has made it his life's mission to give back as much as he received from the game he loves. You know, we attempted to cover it all, but as always, there's so much more to talk about with Dick Connolly. We are your hosts, Thomas Murphy and Colin McGuire, and we hope you enjoy listening to our conversation with Dick as much as we enjoyed having him. We're looking forward to chatting about Arnold Palmer, chatting about all these great golf stories, Dick. We could spend probably five hours chatting with you about these stories, but I kind of wanted to start with, you've spent a lifetime involved in the game of golf in so many ways, be it your own stellar play as a junior all the way through college, caddying for close to 15 years, playing golf your whole life, giving back to the France Dumet Scholarship Fund. But I'm curious to learn, what is your first memory of the game of golf? Who introduced you to the game and what made you fall in love with the game of golf? My uncle Ernie Doherty, who was one of the top amateurs in New England for many, many years. He won the state amateur at Salem in 1953. My mother was one of 10. She was the only girl in the family. She had nine brothers and she was the second oldest. And all the brothers caddied, but when they were caddying, they were caddying to bring money home to the family. When I say poor, I mean dirt poor. So anyway, my mother was the second oldest. When Ernie, seven of the nine brothers, and this is legitimate now, seven of the nine brothers had five or less handicaps. Oh, wow. Legitimately. A lot of people say they have a low handicap, and it's not even close. All these guys were, seven of the nine were terrific players. Ernie was the best. Also, as an aside, now listen to this. Seven of those brothers were in World War II at the same time. They've done stories on them, but it's hard for me to believe that any other family would have seven siblings in World War II or any war at the same time. But they were all in it. They almost wouldn't want to put a family through that, Dick. No, they wouldn't do it anymore now. No, of course, the Sullivan brothers went down on that destroyer. They are on the same ship. So anyways, that's how I got started in golf. I started caddying when I was eight years old. And the people that I caddied for were the World War II people. My father was a World War II guy also. So me caddy and the environment I was in, that was an extension of the way I was brought up mother and father. 
when they say it's, that's the greatest generation, it's not even close. Without question, it's the greatest generation. And for that matter, without the World War II people, we wouldn't be sitting here now. That's how I got started in golf. And this would have been the 1950s that you were caddying. Yeah, exactly. Dick, I remember you, you used to always bring, whether you were close to them, you knew them from your participation, but you'd invite living World War II veterans to the banquet as your guests. I don't know if you knew all of them. Or- Absolutely. Well, of course, Dickie Foley, that helped me with the tournament for years. Tin Can. Yeah, was a World War II guy, and he grew up with my uncles. Same age, the whole deal. This conversation is about Dick Connell, but Dick Foley's the reason I became a Wiimet scholar. That generation impacted so many people, whether it was at the time of the war or 40 years later. Yeah, you told me that. You playing with your uncles? Was it people that you were following or caddying with at Woburn Country Club sort of brought you up in the game or taught you the game? What do you think? I never had a formal lesson. I learned by watching the good players, and I would contend that's the best way to learn any game, emulating the good players. Now, Woburn Country Club, where I grew up, nine-hole public golf course. I'm being conservative now, but there were at least 25 members there. And they had like an inner circle members. It's a public golf course, but they had their own group of at least 25 guys there that were five or less handicaps as well. For a little nine-hole golf course, there were a lot of good players there. They had a great league going there. <laughs> and many of the players that were there also happened to be great athletes in their own right, other sports. So it was a great environment to grow up in. I remember when I was caddying, I couldn't tell you the amount of times that some would say to me, is Ruth your mother? My mother's name was Ruth. Yeah, your mother was the prettiest girl in the city of Wuhan. <laughs> How do you think that made a little kid feel? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and she was. I was the first grandchild, first nephew in the family, obviously. And I spent a lot of time with my grandmother my mother's mother, who was right from Ireland, right from the old side. And did I ever learn a lot from her? And bear in mind now, what do you think she was dealing with when she had seven sons in World War II? Absolutely. Oh, that's amazing. You just mentioned your mother, and I know you've spoken so highly of both of your parents. I'm curious, how did your parents meet? And what are some of the lessons that you learned from a young age that maybe you still carry with you to this day from your parents? They both lived in Wu. My father was an only child because his dad died. When he was a little boy, young, young, you know, so his mother raised him. But he lived in Woburn, was an outstanding athlete in his own right. Great, great high school athlete at Woburn High School. Of course, the Dohertys, because of Ernie was in the newspapers all the time from when he won everything in sight from the time he was 12 or 13 years old. So his name was, at least from the golf standpoint, was in the papers all the time. So the Doherty were a well-known family, and my father, because of his own athletic accomplishments, and he get into politics, my father was an alderman at large in Woburn for the better part of 20 years, and probably as well-liked as anybody in Woburn. Everybody loved my father. He was a very easygoing guy. and So anyway, they met just because of living in Woburn. And I remember him telling me, how do you think I felt going to pick your mother up and having those nine gorillas look at me. <laughs> Will you take an sister Ruthie? <laughs> but think about that. Imagine walking into that house, <laughs> and they're all sitting there. Well, it sounds like an old traditional Irish family. Ten kids. Oh, absolutely. I imagine your grandparents were from Ireland. Right from the old side, yeah. And my mother was an incredible cook, and she learned from my grandmother. 
Her brothers would always say that Ruthie could open the refrigerator door and bring out a selection of leftovers and make a gourmet meal. She was an incredible cook. Even stuff like Italian food. It's funny. I don't know who said this to you, but I just remember a quote, you know, talking about your parents and obviously the inspiration there. And Dick, make sure you're good to your parents while they're alive because it doesn't do any good to visit their graves. Tell me who said that. I forget. One of the guys I caddy for, a fellow named Jim Powers, he had a little construction, from Arlington, he had a little construction company in Arlington. And of course, a lot of the guys from Arlington would come over and play at Woburn. Of course, because Ernie was so well known, a lot of the pros in the area would come over to play too. Like the private clubs when they'd close. And of course, back then, a lot of the private clubs were basically shutting down almost in October. They'd all come over to play at Woburn. But anyways, Jim Powers, a little construction company, he was one of the fellows, he was one of my regular loops. He told me a lot of great things, but that's exactly what he said. And to quote him, he said, Dick, be good to your parents when they're alive because it won't do you any good to go to the cemetery. Now, I can tell you right now, I know a lot of people that went that great to their parents and you can't make it up by going to the cemetery. So I feel very, very proud that I did the best I could. You've probably heard me say this many times too. The best day I ever lived, I couldn't put my father's shoes on. He never got a chance to go to college or any of that stuff. My mother was obviously the beacon in my life. Her work ethic was totally off the charts. That's a lesson you obviously took to heart from someone that you caddy for. And you've said that before all the awards, before the top 100 lists and barons and all that, Dick, you said the best job you still have ever had was being a caddy because it prepared you for life. No question. Absolutely. You learn to be on time. You learn to keep your mouth shut unless you were asked a question. Even stuff like staying out in front of the play and never lag back with the, and I, even when I was a little eight year old, I started when I was eight. Of course, I could only carry one bag then. <laughs> but the lessons you learned, unbelievable. One of the biggest things you learn too is you want to emulate the real good guys. I don't want to be like Mr. Wilson. I want to be like Mr. Jones. And of course, most of the people you caddy for with real good people. Every once in a while, you'd meet someone that had a foul mouth or threw clubs or did something. But you, what you would say to yourself is, I don't want to act like that. So the lessons I learned were mind-boggling. And when I was playing in junior golf tournaments, be nothing for 30 or 40 of these guys. These are all blue-collar guys now, by the way, almost every one of them. Be nothing for 30 or 40 of them to show up to watch me play in the junior tournaments. <laughs> that's amazing. And that's actually what I was about to ask. So obviously, it was a crazy tight-knit community there at Woburn. Did you pick up a club right around when you started caddying? Had you already been swinging the club? I loved baseball. I played a lot of baseball until I got to, I don't know, say 11. And I was a decent little baseball player. But I always have a club in my hand. I started becoming more involved in golf, probably 11 or 12. I idolized Ernie. I mean, if there was money in the game then, and he turned pro, he'd have made a lot of money. But there was no money then to become a golf pro. So he stayed amateur, and he was as good as anybody. And back then, you had, of course, you guys won't recognize these names, but guys like Eddie Martin, Warren Tibbetts, the collection of amateur players in Massachusetts and New England then were unbelievable how good they were. And bear in mind, now, this is not fancy equipment. Half the stuff these guys have today, they, way back then, they didn't even have a sandwich. I'm going to say something now that I say a lot, and of course, a lot of the young people probably think that I'm talking out of my hat, but the same equipment, Nicholas would beat Woods like a drum. 
wouldn't even be close. The stuff they have now, I remember when we had Greg Norman as an honoree, for example, that we met down and we had the press conference. He must have been then near 50, I guess. He was well beyond his tour playing time. And he's at the press conference and he said, you know, he's, I'm playing these golf courses now and I'm hitting the tee shots the same places I hit them when I was 35 years old. And if you think that's me, <laughs> you're dreaming, meaning it's the equipment. No one talks about that. You know, they talk now about 320-yard drives and all that stuff. A big, big part of that is the equipment. They say, well, these guys are stronger today. You name me anybody on that tour now that's stronger than Arnold Palmer was. The technology has completely changed the game. It's the club. It's the golf ball. And Arnold and Nicholas told them years ago, you got to rein this in. But they didn't. Now, for you as a player, growing up, you were a stellar player. I know you're very modest, but you were an excellent player at Malton Catholic. You went on to play at Holy Cross. What are some lessons, some memories you have from, you were a caddy as well, so you were helping people with their game. And knowing you, I'm sure you were a very respectful and, and you were an excellent caddy. Were you harder on yourself when you were judging your own game? Did you have sort of a different approach to when you were managing your own game versus helping others manage theirs? I wanted to be better than I was. And when you're not as good as you want to be, I mean, yeah, back then I was pretty good, no question. And at that time, I definitely wanted to be a golf pro growing up. That's what I wanted to do. Fortunately for me, as I got a little older, I knew it wasn't going to be Arnold Palmer, so I had to get a real job. <laughs> I really wanted to be a golf pro. And I was very tough on myself. I've always had a tremendous respect for the game. In my opinion, the most important people in golf history in this country, Francis Wiemet, Bobby Jones, and Arnold Palmer. Those guys made the game for these guys today. And without Arnold Palmer, golf wouldn't have got anywhere near it. It had everything gone from him. He was a real man's man. People say the men wanted to be like him, and all the women loved him. He didn't even know what he was doing. When they talk about charisma, people with that kind of charisma, that's just natural. You can't fake that. You can't teach it. And believe me when I tell you, he was always the same, whether he was out here with us, whether he was in the locker room somewhere, he never changed. And it was just natural. One of my father's best friends, a fellow named John Buttermer, who I caddy for too, who was great to me, took me everywhere. I remember John came back from a pro tournament somewhere and Arnold had just started on the tour. I remember John came back and he was talking. He said, this guy Palmer, he's one of God's gifted people. You just looked at him. He just oozed strength. And he, the charm was mind-boggling. You can't manufacture that. And it was natural with him. Dick, everybody wanted a piece of Arnold, whether it was a room of five people or 500, and he was more than accommodating. You've seen him in action. He was so good to me, guys, that it's hard to imagine. As I said, all the great stuff that's written about him, he's not that good, he's better. And it, that's hard for anybody to believe. But ask any of my kids. Ask Anne Marie. Ask Sheila. Sheila got to know him well. Dick, when you talk about hard to imagine, it's also hard to imagine that Arnold didn't have someone that was a 40-year relationship like you forever, but you didn't know him at the time that you went down. And tell us a little bit about that story. I'm sure folks love to hear that. When I was at Payne Webber, the CEO, his fellow's name was Don Marin. He loved tennis. The guy that we had is kind of a sports spokes figure, a spokesman for Payne Webber, was Jimmy Connors, great tennis player and all that stuff, but really not that great a guy, but he was an incredible tennis player and 
I said to our national sales manager, the guy I remember Hale Cullum, from a good old Texas boy who loved golf himself and was a good player, but he was our national sales manager. I said, why don't we have someone like Arnold Palmer, who's about as good as you're going to get, and people, our client base, most of your money in our business are with people that are 35 years or older because now they're reaching their levels. And I said, our client base can identify with a guy like Palmer. So I kept it up. I kept saying, why don't we do this? Because Connor's really, he didn't want to be out there greeting the people. It just wasn't his deal. He's obviously a great tennis player. That's as far as it went. He was pretty temperamental too as well. He put on some pretty good temperamental shows as a player. Hale called me up and he said, okay, Dick, he said, your boy's coming to town, to New York. Now, bear in mind, you guys know that Arnold had his own plane, but he flew his own plane. He flew it. Oh, wow. A lot of guys have their own planes. They're not flying them. He flew his plane. (laughs) What year is this, Dick? 1979. 1979. Okay. Okay. So Arnold comes to New York and has lunch with Marin and Cullum. Colum says to Marin, Don, I'm going to take Arnold down to the Florida Exchange, New York Stock Exchange. You should come with us. So Marin goes. Arnold stepped across the threshold of the exchange, standing ovation. <laughs> as soon as people see him, that's the way it's been his entire, once he got to be famous, standing ovation. Marin looked at Colum and said, I get it. I get it. I understand. <laughs> Hale called me the next day or something. He said, Dick, we're going to hire your boy. I said, okay, Hale. I said, I'm going to ask you a question that I know the answer to. Does he have an account with us? The answer was no. I said, okay, well, I want to establish an account with him. Have at it, Hale says. So I called down. This is in the winter now. So he was at Bay Hill. I called down to his office and set up an appointment. Fly down, and I'm all charged up. Coming across from the airport in a cab, as they see what's coming, I'm saying, okay, now, big boy, now what are you going to (laughs) do? This was my hero that I idolized. And, of course, again, at that time, anybody around golf at all, everybody idolized Arnold Palmer, and he deserved it. I get to his office, and his office, like I said earlier, nothing that Palmer did was flamboyant other than the way he played golf. His office was on the floor above the pro shop, at Bay Hill, still there. So I walk up the stairs, and as I get to the top of the stairs, his assistant who was sitting out in front of the office spots me, and of course she knows this is Dick Conley because I had made the appointment. She looks into the office. I'm telling you this to give you a little insight into the way the guy is. Mr. Palmer, Mr. Conley's here. She didn't come and get me. He came out of his office to get me and brought me in his office. Now that's another example of Arnold Palmer. We went in, we talked for easily two, two and a half hours. And our backgrounds are very similar in the sense that Arnold Caddy, he was from dirt poor, believe me, dirt poor. There was never any money in my family, but not to the level that he came from. But we talked about value system in life, work ethic, loyalty. And I remember him saying to me, not then, but over the years, Dick, these people today wouldn't know loyalty if they saw it in the dictionary. He was a big thing on loyal. No one had closer personal friendships than Arnold Palmer. The guys that he grew up with remained his friends forever. So when he went back to Latrobe, which he obviously loved Latrobe, those are the guys he hung out with. Whenever he was asked Arnold Palmer, where are you from? He could have homes anywhere he wanted. Latrobe. 
So anyways, I'm leaving the office after we have the conversation. He grabs me by the arm and he says, okay, he said, Dick, you do your job and I'll do mine. From that point on, he was a client. That's how and a friend. Meant. And a great friend. Oh, and a, and friend. a dear oh, friend. Absolutely. And he was so great to my family, great to Anne Marie, great to my kids. As you pointed out earlier, he stayed with you when he would come through and play in Massachusetts. And Dick, few people probably knew Arnold Palmer as well as you did. But one thing that I came across that I was fascinated about was that Arnold Palmer gave the commencement speech at your son's high school graduation. Is that my true? My son's high school graduation. <laughs> How did that come to be? He wasn't getting an honorary degree at Stanford. Here's a young boy <laughs> graduating from Middlesex School, local school right here in Concord. That came about because Winnie Palmer, Arnold's first wife, who died of ovarian cancer, th- that stage, I probably talked to Winnie as much as I talked to Arnold. I loved Winnie Palmer. And Winnie Palmer was... She read everything in sight. What a smart, smart woman. She just oozed class. She said to Arnold, young Richard is graduating from high school. Why don't you ask Dick if that's how it happened? That's amazing. I called a Middlesex school. They thought I was kidding. Right. (laughs) He came and spoke to that high school class and stood them on their heads. Now, who would do that? Oh, nobody. It's amazing. Coming to speak at a high school graduation, Arnold Palmer? You think these guys today would do that? I'll tell you who else. Bobby Orr, same ilk. Orr and Palmer, same ilk. The kids must have been blown away. Did he stick around afterwards? The graduation, instead of being just a normal high school graduation, (laughs) became a big social event. Because once they get out that he was coming, I'll tell you what else he did. He'd fly right into Bedford over here, Hanscom. So he said to me, he said, Dick, I'm going to be coming up in the morning early always an early, early riser, always way ahead of the appointment. Never, ever would even give him a chance to be late. Sounds like someone else I know, Dick. (laughs) (laughs) He said, I'm going to be flying in. If they want me to do a breakfast at the school now for some of the big givers of potential, I'll be glad to do it. Now, he's volunteering this. No one's asked him to do it. He doesn't know Middlesex School from Mickey Mouse. (laughs) So, of course, I mentioned that to the school, too. They went crazy. So he came and did a breakfast at a house right near the school, probably 20, 25 people, all potential major donors. That's just shows you, who does that? Volunteering it. I didn't ask him. I would have been embarrassed to say, Arnold, would you also do this? And I never would ever ask them to come and speak at a graduation. Helping a friend, something else where you talk about growing something from just you know a regular high school graduation and blowing it up into a fundraiser and a big event. The Francis We Met Scholarship Fund trajectory changed because of you and Arnold Palmer in 1997 as well. And we got the banquet coming up in a few weeks with Ernie Els. But back in 97, our banquet was a gathering. 1949, Francis played piano for 13 We Met Scholars. It grew a little bit. It was a Christmas party. But talk about what it became in 97 and how it changed the face of our organization today and what he did for us. I asked him, would he come and... He right away. Now, here's something that maybe a lot of people don't know. We were at the bar before the event, and he says to me, he says, Dick, how often do you get physicals? I said, probably once a year, Arnold. He said, yeah, make sure you keep doing that. The next day, did you know the story? I do know the story. I don't know if Thomas knows. I don't. The next day, Thomas, he flew out to the Mayo Clinic because he had prostate cancer. Oh, wow. Now, he came and did the dinner. Oh, I did not know that. How many people you know would do that? When I was going to talk, 
he always would have Doc Giffen, who I still talk to every day. Doc is still alive. Doc was his, his closest confidant. Doc was a former sports guy for the Pittsburgh Gazette, and Arnold knew him from the time Arnold was playing junior golf and all that stuff. So he brought, hired Doc. So Doc would put some notes down, and Arnold would take the notes, look at them, stick them in his pocket. But he only had them there just in case. Every talk Arnold ever gave was extemporaneous. He always had a feeling is, just get up there and talk what you know, and you'll be just fine. He's unique in a lot of ways. I'll tell you something else. I said to him once, I said, Arnold, how can you keep signing autographs? People clawing at you, people bugging you constantly, all the time. How do you do that? He did it for his entire life, for probably 60 or more years. How do you do that without losing your cool? He looked at me and he said, Dick, easy to be a good guy. You got to really work at being a pain in the rear end. Now you think <laughs> about that statement. He's right. People that are constantly pains in the rear end take more out of themselves than they do the people they're giving a hard time to. Arnold was beyond a special person. And it's funny to hear my experience with him as a, I'm 28 years old. I don't know him, obviously. I would have the same experience with him that you did as someone who was a dear friend of his. He was a special person. And it's funny, I'm from Connecticut. And so when I talk to people about the Francis Rumet Scholarship Fund, where I work, they may have heard of it. Maybe they hadn't heard of it. But one thing that I'm able to get people to understand the scope of the organization is by talking about the annual banquet, which Arnold was crucial in helping start. I go through the list of the people who have been honored at that banquet, the banquet that you were crucial in putting on and starting and every single year have been. What are some of your fondest memories from the banquets? It's now been over 25 years of annual banquets. What are some of the memories you look back on and remember as special? A couple of things. When we're talking to Ben Crenshaw, Crenshaw said, Anything that Arnold Palmer was associated with? Are you kidding me? Of course I want to do it. And was Crenshaw right after Arnold had done it? No. He was in the few, no. That makes sense. He wasn't right after. But that was the calling card we hit. Curtis Strange, right away, of course I'll go and do it. Arnold did it? Strange and Crenshaw, the first two right after, absolutely. Now, Charlie Meacham, who was our Toastmaster a few times, did you meet him, Thomas? Probably not, huh? No. He came a couple of times, Dick. I'm going to say at least three. Charlie literally got us Sorenstam and got us Lopez and was critical in getting Nicholas. Charlie Meacham was the head of Taft Broadcasting, a very, very well-known, respected business guy in the country from Cincinnati. And he was very close to both Arnold and Nicholas. Charlie is another example who say, look, Jack's fine, but there's only one Arnold Palmer. <laughs> And Charlie was very close to both of them. Just thinking of the name, you just said Curtis Strange and Ben Crenshaw right afterwards said, are you kidding me? Here we are, the banquet, one of our biggest fundraisers, almost $50 million in scholarships. You've always said when you have conversations with honorees and not bad for a little caddy fund, huh? The names that have come through after Arnold. Yeah, I've always said, the right, you take the list of our honorees, that matches up against any organization of any kind in the world those people. How about President Bush? It blows people away, Dick. I tell my aunts and uncles who really don't know about our organization, I said, well, President Bush and Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas came to our event. They were like, are you kidding? <laughs> so it's amazing. I'll give you another one that was amazing. I'm sitting beside President Bush. I think he's one of the great Americans of all time. We're talking and no one ever had a better resume than President Bush Sr. The stuff he did, mind-boggling. Tremendous war hero. He walked away from 
Andover when he was 18 years old to go into World War II and was the youngest fighter pilot in World War II at 18 years of age. But he was ambassador to the UN. He was vice president. He founded his own energy company. On and on. His resume is second to none. So anyways, we're sitting up at the table, at the head table. I looked at him. I said, Mr. President, I said, people say that you have the greatest resume of anybody in history that ran for political office. Does anything really stand out on that resume? He looked at me. He said, Dick, all my kids still come home. That's how he answered that question. He's another unique man, President Bush. And of course, no one that we asked, at least that I was involved in asking, even hesitated. They thought it was a incredible honor that they were invited to speak at our banquet, particularly started by Arnold Cumming. Jim Powers probably would have liked that quote. Oh, yeah. Ties right back to how you started the conversation, Dick. No question. The We Met Fund, and you're our number one alum, number one trustee. You've done so much, but you were an alum who received the scholarship. Dick, can you just double back to your trajectory of you want to be a golf pro, you standout golfer, went to Holy Cross Golf. Can, how did you get to Holy Cross or hear about the We Met Scholarship as being part of your making college happen for you? Who told you about the scholarship? My uncle Ernie told me about the scholarship. And my mother was aware of it, too. My mother was... She's keeping her eye open for those things, I'm sure. <laughs> she was pretty aware. And this fellow by the name of Ed Garrity, who was one of the original founders of the Mass Golf Association, Ed Garrity, he was a Winchester member. And he's the fellow that awarded me the We Met Scholarship. That's pretty much how I found out about it. And of course, back then, I mean, Francis was still around. We used to get the caddy for Francis in the summer once in a while. They'd call us up and I forget who the executive director was then. Would you like the caddy for Mr. We Met? <laughs> <laughs> they did do a couple of the scholars. Two times I caddied for them. We're both at Charles River. I'm sure some of the other guys probably caddied from at Woodland, but it was a big, obviously a tremendous honor. Because one thing that people have to realize, and a lot of people don't probably know, is that caddies have been a big part, an incredible part of golf history. I'm going to tell you another thing, talking about Arnold. One of the years we were going over to London on a business trip, I said to him, Ray, I said, we'll take a drive up to St. Andrews. I said, you'll like the town. This is before. I mean, Amory's really an avid golfer now. She's got to be pretty good. But back then, she didn't play at all. She was a tennis player. So anyway, I said, we'll take her right up to St. Andrews. It's a nice town. So I called Arnold. And I said, Arnold, any chance of setting up a meeting with Tip Anderson? Tip Anderson was Arnold's caddy all the years he played in the British Open. And the one year that he couldn't go over and play, which was 1964, Tony Lima won it. And Arnold set it up so that Tip Anderson would caddy for Tony Lima. And Tip was a functioning alcoholic. was able to function, but he drank every day of his life. So anyways, Tip agreed to have lunch, and Amory's with me. She'll tell you the story. Right at one of the pubs, right off the 18th green at St. Andrews. So we're in talking. And of course, anytime I'm around someone that I really respect or have great abilities, whatever. I'd like to ask him as many questions as they'll answer. We talked about so many things. The other guys he caddied for, Tip's life there. You know, I don't attributed Tip's help with helping him win the British Opens. So now we're going to leave. The lunch is over. Tip looked at Anne-Marie and I, and he said, this is a quote. No one's ever said a bad thing about the man 
And isn't that a hell of a thing? That's him talking about Arnold Palmer. Think about that. That's exactly what he said, like it was yesterday. No one's ever said a bad thing about the man, and isn't that a hell of a thing? The other thing I would say, too, guys, is that what I'm talking about now, only in this country could this happen. I'm some kid from Woburn, Massachusetts, that if anybody told me I would even get to meet Arnold Palmer, let alone become that close to him, only in this country can that happen. It's what a great country it is. It's an amazing story. And Dick, you referenced something when you were talking just before about when you're sitting with somebody and you have a chance, you want to ask questions. You want to be able to pick their brain if you can. I'm sitting here with you now. And as a 28-year-old, I'm wondering if maybe I can just pick your brain about your life working in the financial industry, your incredible success. I know you're very modest, but speaking to some of the young alumni who might be listening or some of the young We Met scholars or myself at 28 years old, what's something that you might recommend to people like us that we should be doing right now, that we should have been doing already for a year in our own investment lives and in our own financial literacy to help us grow and expand and lead healthy financial lives? Well, one of the things that I think that we all should do, and my father always told me this, first of all, be yourself, number one. Because once you try to be something that you're not, it's going to catch up with you. When I was a young kid caddying and playing in the junior stuff, everything, sometimes I'd wonder, do I actually belong at my Opie Hunt Club or the country club or whatever? And my father always said, look, you just be yourself. If they don't want you, that's fine. But be yourself. Don't try to be something different. That's number one. Number two, work ethic is mind-boggling. Mind-boggling how important that is. And I said earlier in the conversation, Arnold said, Dick, I've said this earlier, I think, people today wouldn't know loyalty if they saw it in the dictionary. Now, the one thing that I'm most proud of is the guys I grew up with, most of them never went to college. They're still my friends, my close friends. And I have dinner with them once a month. I take them to the Western Golf Club. There's a total of the remaining 13 of us. We don't get all 13. We usually have nine to 10 every dinner. You've met some of them, Colin. Oh, yeah. These are the guys that remain my friends. My Uncle Ernie, the guy I told you, was co-owner of Cape Cod Country Club, obviously in the Cape. And a couple of my college classmates were down playing golf there years ago. And by this time, I had become relatively successful. So they're in playing golf, and they knew that Ernie was my uncle. And Ernie was obviously, he was very gregarious himself and anybody that knew anybody in his family, he was always, when I was ready to be nice to. So one of the guys said that, Ernie, you know, he said, your nephew has been one of the most successful guys from our class. He said, but you know what, Ernie? He never, ever forgot where he came from. He said, that made me so proud. Arnold Palmer never forgot where he came from. It was dying days. To me, when I see people out taking victory laps, it really bothers the hell out of me because I've always looked up to the real, who I think are the quality people. And no one had more quality than Francis we met. 100%. You and Anne-Marie are in lockstep on that exact same thing, giving back, not forgetting where you came from. And you don't list off all the things you support. The list would be too long, but many people in Boston and New England in Ireland, know what you support. And what's so important about giving back to others and trying to create opportunities for people who might not have the same opportunities as you do now? Things like Holy Cross or the Irish Children's Hospital, the POPs, the We Met Fund, Catholic Charities. What do you point to 
maybe early on in your life that has you and Anne Marie so committed to giving back and helping people? And again, not forgetting where you came from. The way I was raised, if you're lucky enough to be able to do it, what's the motto with the We Met Fund? <laughs> That's right. What's the motto? From what golf has given you, give back to golf. But for what life has given you, give something back. Like I said earlier, I couldn't put my father's shoes on. But I've been very lucky, got well-educated, met a lot of people, golf has been a big part of it. A lot of people, guys that I know, worked every bit as hard as I did, but they were in a different spot and it didn't work out. Am I better than they are? I went into the investment business by chance. I was working for Ford Motor Company, and I was on the path going up quick. I was covering Long Island and calling in the dealers. And I kept running into people that I had gone to school with whose fathers were significant players on Wall Street. And they used to say to me, Dick, you really ought to look at the brokerage business. So I started to talk to their fathers and stuff. I didn't know a stock from a bond, but I became fascinated with the business. And I left Ford Motor Company. My mother and father thought I was crazy. And a lot of the, my, lot of the guys I knew from growing up, why would you leave something like Ford Motor Company or any great company and go into a business where there's no guarantee of anything. I was just fascinated by it. I literally did not know a stock from a bond. No one in my family ever had investments. No one ever had the money to. That was by chance that I ended up there and I got very lucky in the business. So why wouldn't I feel to give back? But there again, what's the motto with the Met Fund? I watched my uncle Ernie my father was the same way, too. Ernie ended up making a few bucks. He had a little oil business. You never saw anybody pay the caddies the way Ernie did. If he took you out to dinner, Ernie always paid. When he took over Wuben Country Club as the pro, he had two of his brothers working from over there. Ernie would literally sell the clubs for less than he paid for them if he liked <laughs> the guy. And his brother Jackie would say, Ernie, what the hell are you doing? That's less than what, what you paid for them. Ernie would say, ah, he's a good guy. But that's the way he thought. Now, that's the stuff that I observed growing up. Just tying it back, the family piece, you must be proud that you're seeing some of the same things. Your kids, they're being themselves. They're in different industries, but they're coming home. And just talk to me about how proud you and Anne-Marie about the growing Conley family. We've been very, very lucky with the kids. And of course, a big thing that helped our kids, my parents and Anne-Marie's parents were alive when our kids came along. So they saw their grandparents. Very influ My grandmother had a tremendous influence on me. And of course, all the uncles did. To me, kids growing up, if they're lucky enough to know their grandparents, that's a tremendous influence. Both of our parents had a tremendous influence on all three of the boys. They would come and watch when our kids were playing sports growing up. They were all pretty good athletes. They'd come and watch the games. Now, here's this little kid playing whatever he was playing. There's his grandmother sitting in the stands. That's a big deal. But the big thing in life, as far as I'm concerned, is this is something my father told me. He said, when you walk into a room, all you want them to say is, that's Dick Conley. He's a good guy, and you can trust him. And my father said, without the trust part, it doesn't matter. Well, what I can say for sure, Dick, is having worked here seven years, I have not met one person who hasn't said that exact thing about you. I know you're very modest, but Colin would back this up, that people speak extraordinarily highly of you and all the impact that you've had on the Francis Reed Med Scholarship Fund. Frankly, it wouldn't be the organization it is today without what you've done. So we thank you for sure. And I wanted to just ask, 
One last question as we're going out off topic, but as we sit here, we started the call, Dick. It's Arnold Palmer Invitational Week. I'm just curious. What's a story from all the times you went down to Bay Hill that you would want to share with the people? Maybe it's about Arnold. Maybe it's about your experience at the tournament. The tournament will be over at this point. We'll know the winner, but we'd love to hear a story about your time down at Bay Hill. I'd go down and spend the whole week there. That's the other thing with having known Arnold that was one of my closest friends now is Tom Ridge, who was the Homeland Security Director. And Tom Ridge was a former governor of Pennsylvania. And he and Arnold were friendly. And I met Tom Ridge through Arnold Palmer, and we became exceptionally close. And Tom Ridge is one of the great patriots in the history of this country. He'd be down there every year, too, for the whole week. But every night that Arnold went to dinner, Tom and I would go with him. And we'd just sit around and observe this whole deal. So we're meeting the Rory McElroys of the world, on and on and on, because they're all coming over to Arnold's table. But every dinner that Arnold had, and he had a dinner every night, he obviously had to speak at some of the functions. Every time we sat down for dinner that whole week, Ridge and I were with him. And other people would come, but every single night, Tom and I were there. Talk about a great thrill. I just sit around and hear these people talking. Another guy that was there all the time, too, was a guy named Dick Ferris, who's one of the owners. Dick Ferris just died of ALS. He was former CEO of United Airlines. He's one of the owners of Pebble Beach, along with Arnold, Clint Eastwood, and Dick Oberoth. They were the guys that bought Pebble Beach. But those were the things that anything Arnold was at, he had Ridge and I with him. Of course, Ridge was very popular because by this time, he had become Homeland Security Director. Everybody in the country knew who he was. And Ridge happens to be one of these guys with an incredible personality himself. And of course, when I first started going there, when he was alive, and as I said earlier, probably as nice a person as I've ever known. Give an example. They're playing word games with Arnold. Augusta, the Masters. Babe Ruth, baseball. All this thing. He's answering. Winnie Palmer. She let me be Arnold Palmer. That's how he responded to that. And she did. All Arnold had to do was play golf. Winnie handled everything else. Everything. Again, think about it. Every president that played golf in Arnold's lifetime made a point to play golf at Arnold Palmer, starting with Eisenhower. Every one of them, at their request, not his. No, he wasn't just a golf legend and hero. He was an American hero and cultural exactly. figure, without a doubt. That's a good way to put it, Thomas. An American hero was right. That's for sure. A lot of people are great baseball players, great golfers, great football players. But you're right. He's an American icon. Not everyone gets on the postage stamp. That's right. That's a good point. <laughs> and I met more great people through him you just knew anybody that was a friend of Arnold Palmer's was going to be a pretty good person. That's just the way it was. Just in closing, just so that everyone knows, I know you know, I hope you know, you've had a profound impact on my life, my career, and I'm proud that golf has enhanced both of our lives more than others might know. But certainly after today, I think people are going to get a great perspective on what golf has done for you and what family has done for you and what loyalty and friends have done for you. So. Hopefully we can all take those lessons and pay it forward. Well, thank you. But let me just say, I'm the one that's been lucky. For example, you two young guys working for and representing the We Met Fund, talk about making me feel proud to see this happening. You're both very, very high type, classy young men. And it's great to see that. So I look at it and I'm saying to myself, man, the We Met Fund is in good hands. And it is. As you said earlier, Colin, the best experience I've ever had in my life 
up until right now, still, is having spent those years as a caddy. <laughs>